0: Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith.
1: Today, this message is titled, The Claims of Christ. And as we examine today's passage, we're going to see that Jesus made six very specific and very extraordinary claims. Six claims that we would say are uh, extremely important a very significant, quite bold, and even audacious. And so what we do with the claims of Christ is critically important. All people, all of humanity needs to understand these claims and then ultimately respond to them correctly. A whole, whole lot depends upon them understanding and then responding You know, as we look at our world and we kind of step outside of our Christian circles, our Christian family, there are a lot of people who have understood that Jesus did exist. Historically, there is uh, quite a bit of, of information and writings that verify that a person named Jesus Christ did live in the first century, a Jewish man, He was executed by Roman authorities and he did leave a very influential group of followers who ultimately created this religion called Christianity. That's a verifiable fact both in the scriptures but also in secular history. And many of those people are part of other religions. For instance, our Muslim friends believe that Jesus Christ was a great prophet, one of the greatest prophets of God, a great spiritual man. And even some atheists, a lot of atheists will say things like, well, I do believe Jesus existed and I believe he was a very good man, a great moral teacher, a wonderful example of of a good human being, an example to follow. These type of things. And so probably uh, if you are a Christ follower, you've had occasions where you've run into either friends or family members or people that are not believers, but they will make these types of statements about Jesus. And it happens to me pretty often, just in part because I'm a pastor. And in fact, it happened just a couple of months ago. When I was out on the Little Red River, it's my day off, and so I was participating in one of my favorite hobbies, and that's fly fishing. And as I was fly fishing, I came across another fly fisherman, and I'm kind of trying to learn a new style of fly fishing, in part because the old style wasn't working very well. And this guy was doing the same type of of fishing technique. And so we struck up a conversation. We shared kind of our experiences and talked about some of the strategies. And then uh, fly fishermen like to, if you get kind of get into the sport, you like to tie your own flies. And so I've started tying some of my flies, and I showed him my flies. They're pretty simple and practical. And he showed me his flies, and they were amazing. This guy was an incredible artist. His flies were unbelievably uh, accurate and detailed and beautiful. And I realized pretty early in the conversation that he was a very intelligent man. And I'm not surprised because all good fly fishermen are quite intelligent. That's another thing you need to know. And we had just a real interesting conversation about fishing. But then he, it, it kind of transitioned, as it often does when you meet kind of a stranger for the first time, he asked me who I was and what I did and where I was from. And so I told him my name and I told him I was a pastor in Little Rock. And then that led us into a conversation about his spiritual journey. And he informed me that his father was actually, uh, had been the, the song leader, I think is how he described it, at Harding University and at Harding you may know it's a Christian college uh, they have chapel every day they have lots of extra worship services this father this man's father was actually kind of on faculty teaching worship leadership and leading ministry events for the school and he said I actually attended Harding And one of my majors was missions, and I, too, uh, had a a brief stint in my life where I served as a pastor. He pastored a little country church up in the mountains, in the Ozark Mountains. He said it was a wonderful community, and he really enjoyed his experience. But then uh, there was a surprising twist in the conversation, and he told me that um, along the way, he has lost his faith. And he began to tell me some examples, some things that happened in his life that kind of caused him to lose his faith. And I listened carefully. And then at the end, I just called him by name. And he says, you know, it really sounds to me that you really didn't lose your faith. You just kind of lost your way. And he said, oh, no. He said, I am an atheist. And he then began to tell me some reasons why he was an atheist, And it's some of the the secular arguments um, against Christianity that you might be familiar with, I've heard before. But then, at the end of the conversation, there was another interesting twist. He said, but you need to know, I do love Jesus. I love Jesus a lot, but I just don't believe he was the son of God. Now, if C.S. Lewis had entered into our conversation, and many of you know who C.S. Lewis um, is and was. C.S. Lewis, um, if you don't know, he was a British theologian. He was a prolific Christian writer and became known as a Christian apologist, someone who was an intellectual who defended the Christian faith, defended Christianity. He kind of became famous through a series of lectures that he gave over the radio uh, in Great Britain during World War II. And there were these theological talks that he shared. And eventually, some of those teachings, those lectures, uh, were, were published in a book called Mere Christianity. And maybe many of you are familiar with that book and have even read it. Well in that book he says this about people who kind of make the sorts of claims that my fisherman friend was making. This is what he said. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. And then from that statement comes an argument from logic that C.S. Lewis presents. It's often described as the liar, lunatic, or Lord argument. And essentially it just goes like this. Either Jesus claims about himself, they were either, True or they were false. Of course, we would all agree with that. Either they're true or they're false. Now, let's just for a moment assume that Jesus' claims were false. If they were false, there are two possibilities. Either one, he knew they were false, and yet he was still making those claims, or else two, he didn't know they were false. So if you follow kind of the logic, if he knew they were false claims and he were still making them, what would that make him? What would that make Jesus? It would make him a liar. He was, and not just a casual liar, he would be what we would call a bold-faced liar because he's intentionally deceiving people about extremely important matters, matters of life and death. So if his claims were false and he knew they were false, he would be a liar. What about the other option? If his claims were false, but he didn't know they were false, he really believed the claims that he made about himself, what would that make him? Well, C.S. Lewis says it would make him a lunatic, a crazy man, someone who is truly insane would only make those sorts of claims If they were not real. So that's one path you could go. The other option either he was a liar or he was a lunatic or his claims were true. And that means he would absolutely be who he said he was and that is the Lord, the Lord of all, the Lord above all, the Lord of the heavens and the earth, Lord of lords. And King of Kings. So basically, he says logically, you have to analyze and hear the claims of Jesus Christ, and ultimately, you're gonna come to one of three conclusions either he was a liar, or he was a lunatic, or he is who he said he was. He is Lord. He finishes kind of this discussion by saying this You can shut him up, meaning Jesus, for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet. And call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, he did not intend to. So, when we're talking about the claims of Jesus, specifically, what are we talking about? What was C.S. Lewis talking about? Well, one of the the most clear passages, and I think the greatest passage in all of Scripture that gives us the claims of Jesus is the one we're going to look at today. It's found in John chapter 5, starting with verse 16. And in this passage, John 5, 16, all the way through verse 30, we're going to see that Jesus made six very specific claims about himself. And so we're going to just identify these quickly this morning and think about their significance. So John 5 verse 16 says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Well, we need to pause there and ask the question, what things was Jesus doing on the Sabbath that were causing him to be persecuted? Well, if you look at the previous story, we find out that Jesus performed a healing miracle in Jerusalem near the, um, the fountain of Bethesda, the pool of Bethesda. And this was a place where we're told that a great number of disabled people used to lie. Blind people, uh, lame people, paralyzed people. And this man Jesus encounters there was one of those who was an invalid. And had been an invalid for 38 years. And that's a lifetime for someone living in the first century world. And so he encounters this man and has a conversation with him. He asks him, do you want to get well? And then the man responds basically saying, well, yes, I, of course I want to get well. But I never can get into the pool when the waters are stirred. And what he meant by that was there was a superstition of his day that when the waters were stirred, this is probably a spring-fed pool, and so there would be uh, turbulence from time to time. uh, And there was this superstition that when that happened, it was done by an angel, and so the first person that could get in the water right after they were stirred would be healed. That was the, the legend. And he says, I never can be the first one in. I just can't move fast enough. Probably had the use of his arms, but not his legs. And so Jesus then just immediately pronounces a healing. He says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And he walked over to the temple, which was close to this this pool of Bethesda. And he's carrying his straw mat now. That's what Jesus told him to do. And when he gets there, the religious leaders, they no doubt would have recognized him. I'm sure he had lived in the area been there for 38 years been around the temple courtyards probably begging for money that's what people in his situation had to do to survive and so they probably recognized him but instead of saying wow what's happened i am so i'm so excited how did this happen how are you walking instead of saying that they said Dude, why are you carrying your mat? It's the Sabbath. You're breaking the Sabbath law. And that's just how these religious leaders, these Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law, that's just how they rolled. They didn't care about the man and his healing. They cared intensely about their man-made rules about the Sabbath. And so he was breaking these rules. The man simply said to them, well, the man that made me well told me to pick up my mat and walk. They said, well, who is this guy? And he said, I don't know. And then later he re-encounters Jesus, and they have a brief conversation. And after that encounter, the man goes to the Jewish leaders and tells them it was Jesus who had made him well. And then they come find Jesus and begin to persecute him. So that brings us up to speed. That's kind of the context of the story. So Jesus, verse 17 says, in his defense, he said to them, talking about the religious teachers, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. Now the religious leaders knew that God continued to work on the Sabbath. He still had a universe to run. He still had people to provide for. He had all of creation to to take care of. They believed that God continued to work, but only God was allowed to. And so Jesus is saying, my father is at work, and so I too am working. And that implies something very important that's clearly explained in verse 18. He says, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. They knew what Jesus was saying. And this is the first claim. Jesus claimed equality with God the Father. That's a, that's a very dangerous claim to be making to these people because that would be considered In their minds, blasphemy, which is the worst of all sins and deserving of death. So they were coming after him. When it says they were persecuting him, it really meant they were wanting to kill him. All right, so that's the first claim that we see. And then we come down to verse 21 and we see a second claim. It says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. So here, Jesus is also claiming a godlike role. If you go back to the Garden of Eden and the creation of the first human being, you read about how God shaped Adam from the dust of the earth and then he breathed life into his nostrils. And the Jewish people rightly understood that God and God alone was the life giver and the life sustainer. And so now Jesus is claiming that he has the same ability, the ability to give life. And he was making that claim. And so that's the second claim. Jesus claimed to be the giver of life. Then we come to verse 22 and 23 and also in verse 27, and we see a third claim says, moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, talking about himself, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And then he kind of echoes this again or reiterates it in verse 27, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. So here, Jesus' claim, his, his next claim Is that he was the final judge over humanity? He was going to be the one that God the Father has entrusted with judging humanity. Then we come to verse 24 and we have a fourth claim. Very truly, he says, that's a term that's used 26 times in John's gospel. Very truly. It's sometimes translated truly, truly. And it's a way, or or sometimes it's amen, amen. It's a way of emphasis. Jesus is basically saying emphatically, I'm telling you the truth. And this is what he says. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged because he has crossed over from death to life. So in essence here, Jesus claimed to determine the eternal destiny of every human being. Again, this is a a very bold and audacious claim to be making. And then we look down at verse 28 and 29, and we have a fifth claim. We have, Jesus says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out, And those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. And this kind of joins his conversation about the ability to give life. He's now saying he has the power to raise people from the dead. Jesus has the power to raise the dead, a fifth claim. And then finally, verse 30, we have a sixth claim. Here he says, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Here, Jesus claimed that everything he did was the will of God the Father. So six very specific claims. Claims that we would say were Unbelievably significant, extremely important, extremely bold and audacious. And these are claims that Jesus has told us about himself self declarations. Think about this for just a moment. This is what Jesus said I am equal with God the Father, I am the giver of life, I am the final judge over humanity. I hold the destiny of every human being in my hand. I will raise the dead, and everything I do is the will of God. Now think about if a human being, other than Jesus, made those claims. What would you think? What would you think about them? I'll tell you what you would think about them. You would either think probably they are delusional, uh, they are crazy, they are insane, or another way to say that, like C.S. Lewis said, it, is they are lunatics. They are a lunatic. Or you might think, man, they are just bold-faced liars. So you would say they are a liar. But when Jesus said this, we know it was... Absolutely true. He backed up what he claimed. And what he claimed was that he was all of these things, and that means he was the incarnate God, the Son of God who was fully God. He came to earth fully God, 100% God, which meant that he had the ability to live a sinless life, But he was also 100% man, which meant he could have sinned but did not. And by coming to this earth as God's representative, fully God, but living fully as a human and experiencing all that we have experienced, he basically earned the right to be the Savior of mankind and the Lord of all. And that's what these claims are leading us to. Claims that all human beings need to understand. And that's part of our job to help others understand these claims. That's our part of our job as Christ followers. But then it also requires a response. And it is truly a matter of life and death. How you respond to those claims. Now, let's go back to verse 24 for just a moment. This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. I think it's a profound verse that helps us understand the results of the gospel. The results of hearing and understanding these claims and then responding to them appropriately. Look at it again. He says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. This verse is describing an event that happens in time. It's a historical event. When a person understands and believes the claims of Jesus and understands who he truly is and believes those claims and then understands the result of their sin and responds to the gospel message to Jesus as their Savior, repents of their sin, and then commits their life to him. I believe all of that is part of the decision that leads one to be saved. And what happens when that event occurs is that we literally cross over from from death to life. One of the famous illustrations that is often used to share the gospel, it's real popular back when I was growing up as as a young Christian, it's still used today. Maybe some of you've been trained and maybe some of you even use this illustration. It's called the Bridge Illustration. And in the bridge illustration, we have, I think, a diagram up here. You're basically showing someone, uh, an unbeliever, that on the left side, we have human beings, and that's where we all start out. And on the right side, there's kind of another cliff there where you have God. And then in between is this Grand Canyon Gulf this huge gulf of separation between human beings and God because of sin. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory. God is not a sinner. He's holy. He's perfect. And he cannot associate with sin. So there's this this Grand Canyon gulf caused by our sin that separates us from a holy God. And so then we see that arrow pointing back from God. What God did, this is what the Bible tells us, really after Genesis 3, the whole Bible is about God's rescue plan for fallen sinful humanity. And ultimately, that plan climaxes. The climactic event is when he sends his son, Jesus. To this earth, to live the perfect life among us, then to die a sacrificial death for us. And by doing that, he provides a way for us to cross over and go from death to life. And we do that by putting our faith, believing the claims of Jesus, and asking him to be our Savior, forgive us of our sins, and then asking him to be our Lord. And so there's another arrow that we could put going the other direction. And that arrow is what John 5.24 is talking about. When a person hears the gospel, the claims of Jesus, understands them, responds to them, there is an event in eternity where your eternal destiny in all things good change. It changes from bad to good. And we need to realize that this crossing over is a miracle. I call it the miracle of salvation, or you could call it the miracle of conversion. I want you just to think about some of the things Scripture says, changes, when you and I cross over, when we go from being unsaved to saved. And I'm just going to give you kind of a a quick little chart here, and we actually have this uh, at the end there's a QR code if you want it from, if you can get it from your phone, you can just get it or we'll send it to you uh, if you want this information. It has scriptures that kind of reference this. But here's some things. When we are unsaved, we are considered lost. Luke 15 tells us that. But the same passage tells us that when we believe the claims of Jesus, repent of our sins, commit our lives to Jesus, then we are found. So you go from being lost to being found. John 3:16 says that when we are unsaved, we're perishing. And then when we get saved, Colossians 1 tells us that we are rescued. Again, God has a rescue plan. It's unfolded in the pages of the Bible. And it climaxes in Jesus and his life, death, burial, and resurrection. We are considered condemned. While we're in our sins, John three eighteen says, but then it also says, but when we come to Christ in faith, we're no longer condemned. We're considered dead in our sins. 1 Corinthians 15 says, and then when we come to faith in Christ, we are alive. And that echoes what John five twenty four is saying. We cross over from death to life. So just take a moment and look at that first chart. And reflect upon that for just a second. I mean, that is extraordinary in terms of what happens to you and your future because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You get to cross from the left side and all of those realities that are horrific, and then you get to come over to the right side where you're saved, and those are so beautifully good. It's amazing. It's miraculous. But it doesn't stop there. Let's go to another chart. It says, when we're unsaved, we're born in sin. Psalm 51 says that. And then we're saved, we're born in the Spirit. John 3, verse 8. Born of the Spirit. When we're unsaved, we're guilty of sin, Hebrews 10 says. When we're saved, Ephesians 1, 7, and 8 says, we're redeemed and forgiven of our sins. When we're unsaved, <clears throat> excuse me, we're unsaved, we're under the control of the evil one, 1 John 5 19. But when we get saved, we're under the control of the Spirit, John 14 17. He comes to live not just with us, but within us. Wow. When we're unsaved, we're described as children of the devil, John 8. But when we get saved, we're called children of God. Extraordinary transformation. So look at that chart for a minute and think about that. Again, it's absolutely miraculous when a person gets saved, comes to faith, believes the gospel, understands the claims of Jesus, commits his or her life to those claims, you get to cross over. And all those things on the left side are no longer describing you or us. And all those things on the right side are who we have become in Christ. Look at the one more chart here. <clears throat> when you're unsaved, you're considered unrighteous. 1 Corinthians 6:9 says, but when you get saved, 2 Corinthians 5:21 says you become righteous in Christ. We have the righteousness of Christ imparted to us. Wow. We're hopeless when we're unsaved. Ephesians 2:12 tells us that. But guess what? When we get saved, we're full of hope. Romans 15.13 describes that hope so beautifully. When we're unsaved, we're in spiritual darkness, but when we get saved, Ephesians 5.8 says, we come into the light of the Lord. And when we're unsaved, we're living out an old nature, a fleshly nature, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, but when you get saved, guess what? You become a new creation in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. The old is gone The new has come. And again, think about that. If you're a Christ follower, celebrate the fact that you're going from the left side of that equation. There was a moment in time when all of that changed. You went from the left to the right. You crossed over that Grand Canyon chasm of separation. And you now have a relationship with your creator God who loves you, who paid the price for you to be able to cross over. And now he walks with you and within you. And he's promised you this glorious, glorious future in heaven and eternity with him directly, physically, forever. And you know what, this is, this is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination. This is just a representative list. We could, had some time, we could put together probably three times this list of benefits that happen when you and I cross over, when we bow our knee to the Lord and confess our sins and commit our lives to him. We could. We, there, there's so much, even more than we've even talked about. It's an extraordinary miracle that takes place. So, if you're here today, I want you to think about these things. Think, of, think about these extraordinary claims of Jesus Christ. Most of us have understood them. Most of us had a moment in our lives where we understood them and in faith we confessed our sins and we told the Lord we want him to be our Savior and our Lord. I think those go hand in hand. Not just our Savior, our Savior and our Lord. And when we do that, when we do that through faith, then the miracle happens. And you know what the Bible says happens? If you look at Luke 15, when that miracle happens, Happened for each one of you that's already made that choice. There was a moment in time when all of heaven stopped. You know what they did? They celebrated. They celebrated your solitary life. And your salvation, and the angels were part of that celebration with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I believe all the people that are already there in heaven celebrating you. It was your, your name that was on the, the banner of the banquet table that day in that moment. That's amazing. That's glorious. That's who our God is, and that's what you have received when you made that decision. And now for you, it's just for for us, we all are are now living out that lordship side of it. And that is kind of a day-to-day process. Lordship means we take ourselves off the throne of our lives, we put him on the throne of our lives. And really, if you're like me and like Paul, although I'm not always a lot like Paul, but when you're like us, you will often put yourself back on the throne. Paul talks about that. You know, I, I know I need to let the Lord lead my life, but I, I often, you know, put myself back on the throne and start doing my own thing. And so that's really, I think, a daily rededication that we need to make to say, all right, Lord, Thank you for being my Savior. Thank you for the incredible future and hope and presence and blessing that I have in you. Now, today, I ask you to help me through your Holy Spirit to let you be in control. Let you be Lord. Lead me. Use me. I want to do your will, not my will. Those are the type of things that I think we pray in application of these truths. Now, if you're here today, and perhaps you're like my friend on the river that I met, maybe you're here and you're still what you would call either a skeptic or an agnostic or an atheist. And my prayer for you is that you would reconsider the claims of Christ and that you would spend some time listening to Christian scholars and apologists that will help you to understand uh, that Christianity is a ver- very valid and true belief system. And, in fact, if that's where you are, please talk to me. I can, we can sit down and see where you're at, what your issues are. I can lead you to a bunch of sources. C.S. Lewis is just one of many that you can read and study that might help you with some of your, your challenges Uh, in terms of believing the claims of Christ. But I'll also say this. One of the things about Christianity that's very important to understand is that it all happens through faith. And faith is not a blind faith. We don't believe blindly. But faith does mean that we're stepping out without all of the questions being answered. And we're trusting and one of the things you'll find out if you do that i've found this out in my lifetime is that after living with the Lord in faith, he just constantly confirms his his reality to me and you begin to just you have all of these this lifetime of experiences where God speaks to you, where God you encounter God through friends, family, others, and situations occur. You see prayers answered, and there's just so much that begins to build up over time that it's undeniable. You experience his reality when you step out in faith, and then your faith grows. And so if that's where you're at, I encourage you to take the next step and open your heart to the claims of Christ, the truths of the gospel, and And I can help you find some resources that will will guide you in that journey, that faith journey. And then there might be another type of person here that maybe just for the very first time, you're understanding the gospel, all that we've been talking about, and the importance of the claims of Christ, and the importance of confessing your sins, the importance of having that moment where you Confess your sins and commit your life to him where this miracle will happen for you. In that moment, if it hasn't happened yet, it can happen today. Right here, right now. Today could be and would be and should be your day of salvation if that's where you're at. And so I just want to encourage you. It's not a hard process. It's really a very simple process with, as we've seen in the chart, profound implications. And really, the process is just, again, understanding the claims of Christ. You can just take these six claims and believing them and then asking him to forgive you of your sins, understanding that sin has separated you from a holy God, and then committing your life as best as you can to making him Lord from this day forward. You're not going to be perfect. That's not what you're saying. And that's not what is possible. But you can commit your life to making him Lord, and then through following the Holy Spirit, he can help you live a holy, righteous life and accomplish the works and plans God has for you. And that event, when you sincerely make that confession and take that step of faith, then the miracle occurs, and it can occur for you today. And that's my prayer.
0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 1115. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.